0: chapter 10 is where we're going to go um, this morning. So, you know, I don't know if uh, you've ever taken the opportunity to stop and to do like a spiritual gift assessment, you know, to figure out like how God's wired you. Um, But uh, undoubtedly, one of my biggest spiritual gifts, maybe the spiritual gift that I exceed in, maybe better than anybody else in this room, is the spiritual gift of procrastination. And uh, I'm just curious, how many of you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit and received the gift of procrastination? Like, you have have felt that gift come upon your life? I remember learning this in high school, you know, and then in college. I get off to college, and it's the first time you're really set free, like, to, to really study at your own pace or do whatever you want to do at your own pace. And, you know, every semester, you'd have those term papers due, like, December 10th. And I could promise you I would not even see the library until December 9th. You know, it's just like the... The adrenaline and the thrill, and my teachers could tell that I had not seen the library until December 9th. But I'd just kind of been baptized in the gift of procrastination. I have this tendency to to save the most important things for last. You know, I was reminded of this last week. uh, I had this huge deadline that I had to get to. I mean, it had just been looming over me for weeks. I knew I had to get it done. It was like right there, like in the forefront of my mind. And so on Friday night, Sydney and I, right before we go to bed, we're laying in bed. And I'm like, man, tomorrow, I know it's our Sabbath, but I've got to do these things. I just, I was feeling this pressure. I was telling her about this deadline, this thing they have to get done. And so Saturday morning rolls around. And knowing that there's this one thing I had to get done, I gave my Saturday to doing everything else. You know, have you ever had one of those days where, you know, I, I woke up and I'm like, this would be a great day to reorganize my closet. I had not done that in a whole year. And that was the day I reorganized my closet and it looks amazing now, you know? And then I got done reorganizing my closet. I thought, man, I need to run some errands. So I went and ran some errands. And then after that, I thought, you know what I need to do? I need to build a skateboard ramp for my boys. And so true story, I went to Home Depot and I spent five hours building this skateboard ramp, if you want to see it, you can go to my wife's Instagram feed and watch a video of her trying to drop in on that that quarter pipe that we built. But I spent the whole day like doing secondary things. And so Sydney comes up uh, towards the end of this five hours of working on this skateboard ramp. And she said, she said, what about that thing? (laughs) Like, what about that thing that was like the most pressing, like important thing? And I'm like, I know it's there, but I just don't want to do it. I just don't want to do it. Have you ever been there before where you just knew like there was this thing? It was just like out there. And and instead of doing the thing, you did a lot of other things. Maybe they were good. Maybe they they were important, but they weren't as important as like the main thing. And I think this is my fear when it comes to following Jesus, especially in a place like Nashville, Tennessee, is that a lot of us will spend our whole lives doing really good things, but we'll never get around to the main thing. That we'll spend our whole lives, like, like, serving and working and worshiping and doing a lot of things that are, like, really good and really matter, but that we'll, we'll get to the end of this, this journey, and we'll stand face-to-face with Jesus, and He'll go, like, hey, what about that one thing? Like, like what about that one thing that I really called you to? Like, like did you get to it? And, you know, all month long or all semester long, we've been been talking about what it means to be people that walk with Jesus for the sake of the city. And everything we've talked about has been really important and really valuable, I believe. But today is the thing, it's the thing that we cannot miss. It's the big E on the I chart. It's the thing that I think will be held accountable for. And I think it's the thing that brings us the greatest joy if we'll actually live into it. And so if you take notes or if you want to hold on to the big idea of of what we're going to talk about this morning, I want us to wrestle with what it looks like to be a group of people who live with radical compassion that flows out of our radical love for God. Like what does it look like to be a people who live with this level of radical compassion because that compassion is flowing first out of a radical love for God? Because I think this this thing that we're going after today, it is the thing that is like front and center in the heart of God, not just for our church, but for his people and for the city that he's put us in. And I don't want us to miss it. I love this moment in Luke chapter 10. Jesus finds himself in a crowd. And this man's gonna come up to Jesus and essentially he's gonna say, Hey, Jesus, we've spent our life doing a lot of different things. Can you help us hone in on the big idea? Can you help us see the big thing? And Jesus is going to pinpoint it like this. Look at Luke chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 25 together. This will also be on the screen if you don't have your Bibles. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. That's an important phrase right there. It says, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. He said, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus turned the question back on him. He said, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And the man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus answered, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Now do this, do this, and you will live. And so I love this moment. It says that Jesus is there in this crowd, and this expert of the law Uh, a lawyer, not uh, necessarily a lawyer as we understand lawyers, but this guy was a a, a theologian. He was a scholar who specialized in the first five books of the Old Testament, which they called the Torah. And he knew all the ins and outs of the law of God. This was this guy's professional job. He had spent at least 18 years in rabbinical training to get to this moment. And now he was practicing as this expert of a law. And here you have this expert of a law that has come to Jesus and this lawyer, he, he asked Jesus a question. Now, here's what I want you to think about for a moment. You know, in, in a trial, when someone's being put to the test, does a lawyer ever ask a question in a courtroom that they don't already think they know, they know the answer to? A lawyer never puts somebody on the stand wondering what they're gonna say. Lawyers ask the questions they think they know the answer to. So he comes to Jesus to test them. He says, Jesus, what is the main thing? Like, how do you want us to spend our Saturday? And Jesus looks at him, and he does this thing that's really frustrating for a lot of us, but instead of answering the question, he asks another question. He says, how do you read it? You're the expert in the law. How do you see this? How do you read it? It's what I do with my children. You know, our boys will come up, and they'll always ask us these questions that they already know the answer to. It's like 11 o'clock at night. Hey, Dad, can I eat a bucket of ice cream? What do you think I'm going to say? Dad, can we juggle pocket knives? Can we start a fire in the treehouse? You know, can we do something dangerous? How do you think I'm gonna answer that, right? They'll ask these questions that they already know the answer to, just hoping to get something different. This guy comes to Jesus. He says, Jesus, what's the main thing? Like, how do we get eternal life? How How do we get at the thing that matters most to God? And Jesus said, how do you read it? And he answers with the textbook answer. He quotes a verse out of Deuteronomy and a verse out of Leviticus 19, He says, here's what God is after Jesus. Here's what what I believe it all points to is that we should love God with the entirety of who we are and that that love should produce radical compassion for those that are in our path. That's the summary of the great commandment, that your love for God would propel you to radical compassion for others. And I want you to look at what Jesus says in verse 28 because it's a really stunning moment. Jesus says, you're correct, Now, if you do this, if you do this, you'll come to life. You'll live. this This is so important. Jesus does not look at the guy and say, great job, buddy. You got the right answer. Now let's move on to your theology of the eschaton. He doesn't say, hey, let's talk about some weightier stuff. He says, no, he says, correct answer. He says, now, if you do this, if you put it into practice, you are going to come to life. Like You're going to experience the life that you never imagined. My friend Douglas pointed this out to me this week. I'd never noticed this before, but the light bulb just went off as I started thinking about this conversation. This expert of the law comes to Jesus, and the question he asked Jesus is, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus says, you don't get it, you do it. It's not something you get, it's something you do. You don't get spiritual community, you do spiritual community, and as you do it, then you get the very thing you want. You don't get eternal life, you you do eternal life. You live into it right here and right now, and everything begins to unfold. And so Jesus answers the question, hey, here's the main thing, here's what's front and center in the heart of God is a radical love for God that begins to produce radical compassion for the people that are right around you. And the man, he hears this answer, and he's blown away by it because it's such a big command. And I want you to see what he says. Look at verse 29. The man responds. It says, but wanting to justify himself, in other words, wanting to be proven right in front of the crowd. I won't make you raise your hand if you've ever done this, but I literally did this on Thursday of this week. You know, have you ever asked somebody a question that you already knew the answer to in hopes that they would just brag on you? Like, I I know that you're probably way more spiritual than me, but I was preparing a sermon on this on Thursday, and I still did it. I asked a question that I knew the answer to and hoped hope this is my on I mean, this is what the guy does. He's standing in a crowd. Hey, Jesus, I want to justify myself. Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Because this is a big command. The command is love God in such a way that radical compassion extends to every person you come in contact with, so much so that you love them more than you love yourself. And this teacher of the law goes, man, how far must that compassion extend? Is that to my wife and my kids and three best friends? Because maybe I can manage that. Or is it to that neighbor that drives me crazy? They leave their Christmas lights up for six months. Is it to that guy at work? Is it to the clerk at CVS who took forever and had such bad customer service? How far does this level of compassion have to extend? That's the question. He says, what is it that God's after? He says, this is what God's after. And then the man immediately says, well, how far does that command have to extend? And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. And here's what I love. Jesus is gonna tell a story and there's so many things that we could get distracted on in this story. We, we, we could spend our time focusing on who is a Samaritan and who is a Levi and who is a priest and who are all of these people? But I don't want us to get caught reorganizing our closets when God is asking us to do the main thing. And I want you to notice that although there's a lot of interesting stuff in this story that Jesus is going to tell, he tells the story for one reason, and that is to answer the question, to whom does this compassion have to extend itself? To whom is your neighbor? Does that make sense? Kind of give me a verbal if that makes sense, because I don't want to miss. The one thing that Jesus is trying to answer is, who is your neighbor? He says, let me tell you a story. It goes like this, verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, went away, leaving him half dead and naked. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, who was another religious person. When he came to the place and he saw him, he passed by on the other side But a Samaritan, this would have been the least likely person in the story during the days of Jesus, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him, he went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on him, then he put the man on his own donkey, he brought him to an inn and took care of him, and the next day he took out two denarii, which is like two days worth of wages during the days of Jesus, and he gave them to the innkeeper, and he said, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for every extra expense that you may incur. And so uh, this man comes to Jesus. What is it that God's after? Radical love that expresses itself in radical compassion towards your neighbor. The man says, how far does that have to go? Who's my neighbor? Jesus says, let me tell you a story about a guy that was walking down to Jericho and he was beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. And there's a lot of things that you could see in the story, but I just want you to notice a couple of things. As Jesus starts to talk about this kind of compassion This sort of compassion that Jesus is speaking about is a type of compassion that is never convenient. Compassion in the eyes of Jesus is never convenient. Compassion does not fit in a slot on your calendar. Compassion doesn't fit neatly between that two o'clock and that four o'clock meeting that you have on Thursday. Compassion doesn't fit neatly in the slot that you had allotted for house church or for church or for service, that the compassion is very rarely a convenient invitation. And this is important. I mean, think about this Samaritan. We have no idea where he was going, but he had places to be. He was traveling to see somebody down in Jericho. We don't know if his friends or family, and maybe he's traveling for business. And this was in a day before cell phones. He couldn't even call and text them that he's running late. He says he's on the way, he sees this guy that's in need. And he doesn't just stop to check on him. He stops to help him. And it says he spends the entire night nursing this guy's wounds, taking care of him. See, the compassion of Jesus, the compassion that Jesus is calling us into is a compassion that is never convenient. And if you worship the God of convenience, you will never follow the God who's marked by compassion. Because compassion's not convenient. Not only is compassion not convenient, Compassion isn't cheap. And I don't know if you noticed this, but the, the, the guy, he, he stops on the side of the road and he uses his own supplies to meet the guy's needs. He uses his own money to pay for the guy's needs. He sees the opportunity and he doesn't get a group together and say, man, we need to start a nonprofit. We need to do, you know, those things are not wrong. But what he sees is he sees the need and he meets it at the cost to himself. I go, this is the invitation. This is the invitation of Jesus' definition of compassion. It's very rarely convenient. It's very rarely cheap. And it is almost never clean. I want you to think about this, how disgusting this scene would be. This man is naked and nearly dead. He is bleeding on the side of the road. You know, I don't know if you've ever tried to pick up a naked, bleeding man before, like Neither have I for the record, but like I want you to just imagine this scene, like if somebody was laying on the ground naked and bleeding, and you're trying to lift them up, how heavy and how awkward and weird that would be. The blood is getting all over this guy, all over his robes, all over his clothes. It says that he lifts him up and he puts this guy on his own donkey. Now we don't know a lot about the Samaritan, but if he was if he was in the lower class of society, he wouldn't have had a donkey, he would have been walking. If he was in the upper class of society, he probably would have had a nice horse, but this guy's rocking a nice donkey, probably middle class, you know, this guy's not driving an Escalade, he's got a 2004 Suburban with cloth interior, I mean, that's the, <laughs> that's, that, that's the car, maybe an Explorer, you know, like Ford Explorer is this guy's car, and, and he's rocking it, and he, he, he lifts him up, and he puts the bloodied guy on his cloth seats in his car. Compassion, at least as Jesus defines it. It is never something we can just do from a distance at an arm's reach with a little bit of money, a little bit of time, a little bit of prayer. Compassion, it is close, it is costly, it is messy, it is expensive, and it is very rarely convenient. But Jesus looks at this teacher of the law and he says, This is what I'm talking about when I say that you love God in such a way that it flows into radical compassion for those that are in your path. I love the way the conversation keeps going. Look at verse 36. It says, Now Jesus asked the question. He says, Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who had fallen into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replies, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus replied, Go and do likewise. Like I love this moment. Jesus doesn't go, Great job, you passed the test. Jesus was not concerned whether or not this guy knew the right answer. He was concerned whether or not this guy would go and live out the right answer. And the problem for this expert of the law is the same thing that's the problem for so many of us is that his level of knowledge exceeded his level of obedience. And that whenever your level of knowledge exceeds your level of obedience, you are setting yourself up for self-deception. Where you spend your whole life reorganizing the closet, and running the errands, and building the skateboard ramp, but never getting around to the thing that mattered most. And Jesus says, here's what it is that I'm after. I'm after a love and devotion to God that is so intense and so beautiful that it will begin to naturally produce a level of compassion in you. A level of compassion that is willing to be inconvenienced, that is willing to pay a price, that is willing to get messy for the sake of the people that are right in front of you. He says, when you begin to live that out, all of a sudden you're seeing the big E on the eye chart of what it is that God is after. And I'll just confess that this week, like this isn't like an object lesson. Like this week I was reading this. I thought, man, God, I don't want to teach on this because I'm not living this out. And at least you all can sit in the seats and escape. Like, I've just got to wrestle, at least in front of you, with the reality that this is not as true of my life as I want this to be true of my life. That just like I do on a Saturday, man, I do this with the Lord. And I can do a lot of good things and miss the big thing that God has called me after. And so this week I just started wrestling with okay, God, what is it that keeps me? You know, I'm, I'm like the, the expert in the law, I know the right answer. Every week we say this as a church before we leave. We exist to love God, love people, awaken a movement. We take it from this story. We know the right answer. The question is not, would you pass the test on Sunday? The question is, would you pass the test on Monday? If I passed out the the fill in the blank here, what's the two most important things to God? Love God, love people, nailed it. But the question is tomorrow when you're running 10 10 minutes late for the meeting or when your kids or taking more energy than you want them to take, or when school is bearing down on you, or when you have that thing that you've been planning to do, and when you come in contact with the person in need, will your love for God be clear enough that it flows towards them in radical, costly, inconvenienced compassion? Jesus says that is what God is after. You know, for me, I just started making a list this week. I'd encourage you to do it. I'll share some of my brokenness and baggage with you, and you go home and figure out your own baggage. But I was like, God, what is it that keeps me from living this out? You know, one of the things that kept coming up, the Spirit just kept showing me, is that sometimes I'm just too busy. Sometimes I'm just too busy. I'm talking about me. I'm not talking about you. I'm just going gonna, gonna to use you all as my therapist for the next five minutes, okay? Like, <laughs> these are some of the things that jacked me up. Like, And here's what I've learned, is that when, when I'm too busy... When I'm too busy, I see people as an inconvenience, not an opportunity. And I hate that that's true about me. Have you ever had one of those moments where your schedule is so full and somebody stops and they ask you to do one more thing and you just want to snap? Because you're a Christian and you're from the South, you know how to manage it externally. But internally, you're about to freaking die. Like You're like, oh, one more thing. One more thing, right? Like... And you just realize the invitation to compassion, it is never convenient. And when you're too busy, when you're too busy, you'll never step into it. People will be a problem to be solved instead of a person to be loved. I love love how Jesus would live this out. You know, there's that moment in Mark 5, he's preaching, he's in the middle of preaching and somebody interrupts him in the middle of the sermon and says, my daughter's dying. Jesus leaves to go heal the daughter. On the way to go heal the daughter, somebody else stops him in the crowd and says, I've been bleeding for 12 years. He's in the middle of being interrupted and he's interrupted again. And what do you see in Jesus? Is that he had compassion (laughs) because people were never in the way. People weren't the obstacle to what it is that he's trying to get accomplished. People were, people were the thing that mattered. And sometimes, you know, I realize, man, I've just missed it because I'm too busy. But it's not always just that I'm too busy. Sometimes it's that I'm too insulated. Maybe you relate to this. Here's what I've noticed is is that whenever I insulate myself from real problem and real need, I begin to believe that the reason I'm not living this out is just because all of it's been taken care of. Here's the reality is, I think all of us, at least on some level, when we have a free moment in our schedule, we tend to fill those free moments by going to places and being with people that make us feel good. And that's, in and of itself, that's not a terrible thing. But just let me tell you, the mission of your life is not your enjoyment. I believe that when you live on mission with Jesus, you will have great enjoyment. But the mission of your life is not your own enjoyment and if we're not careful we'll spend every free moment insulating ourselves from real need and real pain because we fill our lives by being with people in places that make us feel good but the reality is this city is filled with people laying on the side of the road that have been forgotten hurt left broken abused abandoned by society And the question is not if they're there. The question is, will we be the kind of people that will break down the bonds of our own insulated lives to go there because that's what the mission of Jesus calls us to. There's times I miss this because I'm busy. There's times I miss it because I'm insulated. There's times that I miss this because I've reduced my definition of compassion to something smaller than what Jesus defines it as here in Luke chapter 10. Here's what I mean by this. There's been seasons in my life where I'll say, you know, the compassion, To be compassionate for Jesus means I need to use my voice or I need to use my money or I need to use my platform. And and, and the truth is, compassion will require all of those things of you, your voice, your money, your platform. But the compassion that Jesus is talking about never starts there. The compassion that Jesus starts does not start on your Twitter feed. And here's the problem, if I could just say it. A lot of us are willing to say things on Twitter to advocate for things on Twitter that we won't advocate for around our dinner tables. I'm glad that you're passionate about racial reconciliation. But if you don't have any friends of other races sitting at your dinner table, then your voice is hollow. We don't need to speak about it on Twitter before we speak about it around our dinner tables in our own lives. And if we reduce compassion to merely using our voice or to merely giving our money and we never get down off the donkey and wrap our arms around the bloody bodies of our brothers and sisters that have been left on the bottom of society, if we never get into the best, we're not doing the thing that Jesus has invited us to. Sometimes I'm too busy. Sometimes I'm too insulated. Sometimes I reduce the definition. Sometimes... I'm just too self-centered. And I know none of you have ever struggled with this. These are just my baggages, okay? Like, I'm just telling you my stuff. I go, guys, we live in a culture that is continuously discipling us to worship ourselves. Everything around you is, is trying to tell you that you are the most important thing in the world. And it's just not true. I mean, this is an amazing phenomenon. There there used to be a day, some of us are old enough to remember this, there used to be a day where cameras were used to take pictures of things other than yourself. (laughs) I literally remember when you had to define the word selfie because nobody knew what it meant. There's a weird selfie, what is that? It it is a crazy phenomenon that the, the most expensive camera you own is on your phone and that is pointing at your face. It has been built that way because the culture has told you that you matter more than anything. We live in a culture, we're just breathing in the air of self-centeredness. We don't even realize. The other day, I was out in this park and this guy is running through the park and he's got a drone that he was operating that was following him as he was jogging. This guy was making a reality TV show about himself. And if that's you, I'm sorry. (laughs) I did not think I recognized this person. I hope they don't go to our church. But like, he was... And here's the weirder thing. It wasn't that he was doing it. It was that no one in the park thought it was weird. Because <laughs> that's where we live in. We live in a world that is so self-centered. And listen, when you are in the center of the universe, compassion, compassion is just a thing you get around to when it's convenient for who? You. This has been one of the barriers for my life is that I just want to be in the middle of it all. Jesus says, no, it's not about you. It's not about you. said this before, it's a humbling thought, though, to just realize how finite and small our lives are. You know, you will be forgotten by your own family, which sounds nuts. But we go through this room, and how many of you could name your great-great-grandfather's name? Like, His family. Maybe you could. You know, go back one more generation. Could you name your great-great-great-grandmother's name? It's like, your own family will forget your name. There'll become a point where it's like, because the story that you're living right now is not a story about you. It's a story about the God of the universe and he's inviting you in. But sometimes our busyness and our insulation and our reduction of our understanding of compassion or our self-centeredness keeps us from it. But maybe some of you are sitting here and there's been finer moments in my journey where, you know what, i thought, man, I want to do this, but I'm just so uncertain of where to get started. I don't even know where to get started. And some of you are going, man, I, I wanna do this. I wanna break these bonds. I wanna live into the main thing. I just have no idea where to get started. And I, I just wanna give you a couple of practical things. You know, some of you are going, man, I would love to serve this way. I would love to lo- love this way. But I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I'll just give you a couple of opportunities. You know, starting tomorrow night, Every Monday night through the rest of the winter all the way through the end of March, every Monday night, a group of people from Ethos Church, we, we host this thing called Room in the Inn where literally we bring in men and women off the streets and we care for them, love them, feed them, serve them. We, we, we walk in levels of compassion. And we need volunteers and house churches and friend groups to literally sign up for a Monday night every Monday night through the end of March. And today before you leave, Sam Parnell, he's sitting out at a next steps table and you, you and your house church or you and your friend group, you can sign up for one of those Monday nights. Some of you are going, man, I don't know where the people laying on the ground, beaten up by society. I don't know where to meet them. I don't know how to engage them. I go, man, start by showing up on a Monday night and you don't have to just serve a meal and you don't have to just provide a shelter. You can get to know a name. You can get to know a story. You can sit down and listen to their heart. And you know what? You can actually hang out with them on Tuesday as well and Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday, and, like, and you can welcome them into your life. It's a great first step if you're uncertain. You don't know before you leave today. Do that. You know, there's another opportunity. We've, we've been connected over the last six months or so with this hotel down off of Murfreesboro Road. Uh, it's in a part of the city that's known on the streets as the Misery Mile or the Devil's Den. Uh, it's the place that's overrun by drugs and prostitution and sex trafficking, it's just, it's a part of the city that doesn't get any publicity when people come to visit the city for a bachelorette party. It's kind of the underskirt of the city that people don't know what to do with. And there's this little hotel right there in the middle of that stretch. You know, the majority of the people that live there have uh, felony records. A lot of them are on the sex offenders list, and the society doesn't know what to do there. But it's been amazing because over the last few months, there's been this ministry that's been going on there and they they approached our church and they said, hey, we've seen an ethos. We've seen in the people of ethos the kind of compassion that could love people that are on the bottom. Would you come engage with us here? So every week, people are going and they're serving meals and they're discipling these men and women. They're, They're taking care of the kids and they're doing all sorts of incredible things. And I believe the opportunity just has the ability to just keep going further and further and further. And one of the things that you could step into today is literally as you're leaving At that same place we sign up for Room in the Inn, we have these grocery bags with a list on it. Take one of these bags, fill it up with the stuff that's in it this week, bring it back next week. We're gonna throw a huge Thanksgiving celebration for them on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. We're gonna bless their lives. We're gonna engage, but we're not just dropping things off. We're engaging with them relationally. We're saying, God, how can we go that next step? Because compassion isn't just about what we give. It doesn't stay at a distance. It gets down off the donkey. It meets people in the mud and it says, come all the way close. And for some of you, man, that'd be a great opportunity. If you're over the age of 18, that's kind of the rules for going and serving on site there. If you're over the age of 18 and you want to go serve, come serve with us, get engaged. You can do that before you leave. But it's not just stuff that we've put together for you, man. You know, every day, I'm convinced, before you get home today, you'll probably see an opportunity. Or before you get through your work week, you're going to see an opportunity I just want to challenge you, will you be the kind of people that will meet it? You know, we've we've handed these out so many times before, but we've created these resources. Love Your Neighbor resources that are literally just designed. It's a journal. You can sit down and walk through it literally in under an hour and just answer a few questions. And I guarantee you, it will help you begin seeing some of the needs and the areas of brokenness around you and what to do about it. And here's what I go, I go, man, what's our legacy as a church going to be 50 years from now? Who knows, But, but my desire is that when the city looks at ethos, they go, you know, it's kind of a ragtag group of people. They don't have it all together, but we know they loved God because of how they treated us. Like, wouldn't that be an incredible thing like on your tombstone? Like Dave Clayton, this guy loved the Lord because of how he treated me. That's what you were made for. Jesus says, you don't come alive because you know this. You come alive because you what? Help me out. Because you, you do this. Because you what? Because you what? Come on, because you what? Because you do this. Because you do it. Because you do it. And it's not this like white knuckled religious, like, oh, we gotta do it. Jesus says, oh, you get to do it. <laughs> Like, can you see Jesus' eyes in this story? Like, he wasn't sitting there going, you gotta do this. <laughs> you gotta do it! You gotta do it! Like, no, no, no. Jesus, Jesus is like, man, I'm so glad you got the answer. So glad you got the answer. You gotta do it, man. You gotta do it. You gotta try it. It's, it's gonna be so fun. It's gonna be messy. It's gonna be hard. It's gonna be confusing. You're gonna make some mistakes. You gotta do it. You gotta do it. And man, when you do it, You'll come alive. I go, may we we not become a place of people who show up every Sunday and just reorganize the closet and run the errands and build the skateboard ramp and get to the end of the day and go, but we forgot the main thing. Jesus says, what is it that God's after? Radical love for me, expressing itself in radical compassion, that we would become the kind of people that would do for one that which we wish we could do for everyone that we do for that one person right in front of us, what we wish we could do for everyone. Let me pray over us we get ready for communion. Lord, we know your heart on this. Jesus, you would never ask us to do something that you yourself have not first done. And Lord, you are the poster child for the one who was inconvenienced, who paid the price, who got into the mess when we were laying on the side of the road, bloodied, beaten, and left for dead. Jesus, what we're asking for is a heart transplant. Would you give us your heart? Would you give us your eyes? Would you help us to see? Would you help us to get down into the mess in ways that are helpful for the people that we're helping, in ways that are glorifying for you, the one that we are serving, and in ways that are joy-filled for us as we get into it? God, we thank you. We thank you for what you're doing around us. Give us your heart. Give us your eyes. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.